So here we are, we're in the middle of chapter 35, and we're tackling a very important question. And that is, why is physical deed so important? It doesn't seem to make sense. Isn't our life's journey about connecting to Hashem? Isn't it about being in flame with love for Him, on fire with love for Him, passion and true awe for Him? Shouldn't we be refining ourselves so much so that we become a suitable vessel for the Shekhinah? And physical deed, yes, it helps us. But why is that given primary importance? And then we looked at the life existence of the Benoni. And Sorry we said, sure. It just, it seems like very uh, critical for to understand. What is like physical deed? Physical deed means the actions that we do with our body. We actually carry it out. So you can okay. meditate from today till tomorrow on how amazing matzah is. If you didn't actually chew the matzah and swallow it, and let me make this a little louder. If you didn't actually chew the matzah and swallow it, you didn't do the mitzvah. But what if you had passionate love and feelings for Hashem and you wanted to connect with Him? You even wanted to eat matzah, but you didn't have matzah. So yes, there's a certain credit that you get, but the actual mitzvah you don't get if you didn't chew and swallow the matzah. Why is that so important? If the person is so spiritually refined that they're feeling the ecstasy of the matzah and they refine themselves in such a way and they know the spiritual intentions and then with forces beyond their control, they couldn't eat matzah, they should have reached an extra special place of closeness to Hashem more than the person who ate the matzah because robbers told him he had to. But it's not like that. The guy who actually ate the matzah without those intentions experienced a deeper level of connection with Hashem. And that is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. The altar Rebbe then asked a question about the very existence of the Benoni. Every single divine soul comes down here, not as another entity in the physical body. So there's the animal soul and there's the divine soul and they're fighting over the same body. That's true. But do you know how the fight goes? It's the divine soul clothed within the animal soul and can only act through the medium of the animal soul. And that would be all fine and good if the Benoni had the capacity of elevating his animal soul, but he doesn't. He is doomed to a life of struggle. He will never be able to totally vanquish the animal soul. And if that's the case, if he can't refine it and it's come down in a way of investiture and clothed within the animal soul, why? Why did he come down here? And the Altar Rebbe started to say, take this comfort. No. That Hashem dwells with you in your Torah and your mitzvah performance. That even if you're not feeling it, and even if you will never be able to refine your animal soul, you experience a connection to the divine in your act of mitzvah, in your Torah study. And now the altar is going to explain why. V'hu b'haktim l'shein hayanuka b'zayhar parshas balak. The above-mentioned difficulties will be resolved by clarifying first the comment of the Yanuka quoted in the Zohar, Parshas Balak, on the verse, The wise man's eyes are in his head. So the Altar says we're going to understand this. We're going to first look at a statement in the Zohar from the Yanuka. The Yanuka means the young child. We're going to talk about him in a minute. 
And he's asking a question on the words of King Solomon. King Solomon says, The wise man's eyes are in his head. Here's his question. The Zohar comments, where else are a man's eyes? So King Solomon, the wisest of all men, says the wise man's eyes are in his head. What is he teaching us? He is the wisest of all men. Look at any other person. You know what the Yanuka asks? The Yanuka asks, where else are a man's eyes? It's not just a wise man. It's everybody. He said, perhaps their eyes are on their arm or maybe in their body. What does it mean? Their eyes are in their head. So then he explains what it is. Now, the Yanuka is the young son of Rav Sava Hamnuna. He was a young child that was very, very wise beyond his years. He came down with a soul that was already here before as a tzaddik and came to perfect something very small. He lived in Kfar Sechnin with his mother. His father already passed away when he was very young. Now, the Zohar tells us that one time, Rav Yitzchak and Rav Yehuda were traveling through Kfar Sechnin and they wanted to visit the home of Rav Sava Hamnuna. They come to the house and the young boy who used to go to school all day comes home early because through divine intuition, through Ruach HaKodesh, he knew he was informed that special visitors are coming to his home. So his mother is happy to see him and she said, go stay near those men. It will benefit you and you will get blessings from them. So he starts to approach them and then he walks away and he said, I'm not coming close to them. They didn't say Shema today in its proper time. So they overhear him. Rav Yitzchak and Rav Yehuda overhear him saying this to his mother. And they said, yes, that's true. We didn't say Shema in its proper time. Now, what was the pro- problem with him being next to them when they didn't say Shema in its proper time? He told his mother that from heaven, they told me that anybody who doesn't say Shema in its proper time is under excommunication for that day. So he started to come close to them, but then he moved away because they were in a state of excommunication that day. Why? Why would they be in a state of excommunication? Because Shema is made up of 248 words. There are actually 245. We repeat the last three words, and these correspond to the 248 limbs of the body. When a person goes to sleep, their soul goes up and there's a certain level of impurity that then comes to the limbs. This impurity stays even if a person learns Torah, even if a person does mitzvahs, it leaves through the words of Shema. If a person doesn't say the words of Shema, then these 248 Ramach turns into Cherem, which means excommunication. So he comes close to these people, but then he withdraws because he senses that they didn't say Shema in its proper time. And they look at the little boy and they say, it's true. We didn't say Shema in its proper time. But do you know why? Because there was a bride and groom that was supposed to get married today. They didn't have enough money. They were going to postpone the wedding. So we collected funds to help them get married. And the halacha is Ha'isek b'mitzvah. Somebody who is busy with one mitzvah is exempt from another mitzvah. So because we were so consumed with marrying off the couple, we didn't have to say Shema in its proper time. And they asked him, how did you know that we didn't say Shema in its proper time? And he said, 
When I came close to you, I smelled your clothing. And that's how I knew that you didn't say Shema in its proper time. And so Rabbi Yehuda turns to Rabbi Yitzchak and says, it seems to me that he's not a human, he's an angel. Okay, so this is the Yenuka, the young child. And he's expounding on the teaching of Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon saying, the wise man's eyes are in his head. And now he's explaining, because it seems like such an obvious statement, not just the wise man's eyes are in his head, everybody's eyes are in their head. So this is what he says. Surely then, the meaning of the verse is as follows. We have learned that a man must not go four cubits while bareheaded. Why? Because the Shekhinah, the divine presence, rests upon his head. So in order to explain the verse, he references a statement of Moshe Rabbeinu in Raya Mehemna, another section of the Zohar, that the Shekhinah rests on a person's head, and therefore a person should never go four cubits bareheaded. The Shekhinah is everywhere, and out of respect for the Shekhinah that rests upon our head, the head is covered. Now, covering the head is a sign of respect. It's a sign of accepting authority. In fact, when the Torah tells us that the Jewish people left Egypt and they were in a state of liberty, so it says, Uvenei Yisrael yaitim biyad rama. They left with a high hand. Onkelos translates it in Aramaic, bireish galei, with an uncovered head. Uncovered head signifies throwing off a yoke, liberty. So, the opposite of that is accepting authority, respect. Out of respect for the Shekhinah, a person should cover their head. Now, I know women don't wear yarmulkes. I actually asked about this because I wanted to get the clear answer. You should know that the Shekhinah rests on top of every Jewish person's head, man or woman, young and old. In fact, if you look at the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, the author of the Tanya wrote A Code of Jewish Law. And he says explicitly that on every group of 10 Jewish people, the Shekhinah rests. So for a minion, for specific reasons, it has to be men. But in general, there's a certain level of Shekhinah that rests when there's 10 Jewish people, no matter what they're doing. And that's why the Rebbe encouraged Jewish women to study Torah in groups of 10. Because there's something special about getting together. That's what I miss about getting together in person. Is that you remember that? When we had our 10 plus women, we knew, we felt that the Shekhinah was there. So we know that the Shekhinah is always on top of every person's head. There's a certain level of resting when there's 10 people. But here we're examining the statement of Moshe Rabbeinu that a person should not go four cubits without covering their head because of the Shekhinah, out of respect for the Shekhinah. I'll tell you a story from the Talmud about the Ayamaka. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, one of the great sages of the Talmud, when he was a little baby, his mother was holding him. And an astrologer walked by and said to her, your child will grow up to be a thief. So immediately she covered his head. And when he got older, she told him, my son, always keep your head covered and pray for mercy. And he did. He always kept his head covered. And he one of the, became one of the greatest sages, Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. 
One day he was sitting under a date palm that was not his own. A wind came and blew off his head covering. And within seconds, he was climbing up the tree and bit off a cluster of dates with his teeth. And then he caught hold of himself and he said, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And he jumped down. And then he realized his mother's wisdom in keeping his head covered out of respect for the Shekhinah. It reminded him always of Hashem's presence everywhere, all the time. Okay, so what's so special about the wise man that his eyes are in his head? Therefore, every wise man has his eyes, meaning his interests and concern, and hence also his speech, concentrated in his head, meaning in that light of the Shekhinah, which rests and abides above his head. So what makes this person so wise? What makes him so wise is that he never loses focus on the fact that the Shekhinah is on his head. He realizes that this is of primary importance and all of his interests, his concerns, is about the Shekhinah on his head. V'chad enoi taman linda dahu nahira da'adlik al now, when his eyes, meaning his interest and his concern are there, he must know that this light kindled above his head, meaning the light that shines upon his soul, requires oil. So this person is focused. What makes this person wise is that he is keenly aware that the Shekhinah is above his head. And because he realizes and recognizes that the Shekhinah, the light of the Shekhinah rests above his head, he becomes very focused on providing oil for the light of the Shekhinah. Now, here's a really great analogy that I've shared before, but it's so poignant I have to share it again. And it's about never losing focus on what's important. So this person is so wise. What makes him so wise is he never loses sight of what's important. Look, we come through life, there's all these distractions, and sometimes things that are secondary or of less importance become of primary importance, and the things that are the most important don't get our attention. And there's a parable from Reb Simcha Bonim of Pshischa that a wealthy landowner bought himself a handsome steed, so, so expensive that he was afraid someone's going to steal it. So what does he do? He builds a barn like a fortress, and he puts iron gates and locks. And then that's not enough. He said, I got to get a watch guard. There has to be a watchman that stands here all night and makes sure that nobody steals my horse. So he hires a watchman and he goes to sleep. And he's thinking that watchman must be tired. I bet you he's going to fall asleep. He's not watching my horse. So he jumps out of bed. He goes to check on the watchman. And sure enough, he's awake. He's deep in thought. And he said to him, wow, it's so late at night and you're still up. I'm very impressed. What are you thinking about? And he said, I'm thinking about that when you knock a nail into a fence, now there's a hole. But what happened to the material that was in the hole? He said, wow, you're a genius. You're off the charts. So happy I hired you. Thank you. And he goes to sleep. The next night comes and he's thinking, oh, I bet you the watchman's tired. Sure, he fell asleep. I'm going to go check on him. He goes to check on him and sure enough, he's awake. He's deep in thought. And he says to him, 
my dear professor, what are you thinking about tonight? And he said, I have a very important question that's bothering me. When you eat a bagel, what happens to the whole? He said, wow, what a mind. I am so lucky to have you as my watchman. And he goes to sleep. Third night comes and he said, oh, come on. He can't be up tonight. This is too much. I'm going to go check on him. And he comes to him and he sees he's awake, but he's agitated. And he said, tell me, what are you thinking about tonight? And he said, don't get mad at me, but this is what I'm thinking. You built a barn that's like a fortress. You have iron locks and iron bars. You hired a watchman to stay up all night. And nevertheless, the horse disappeared. How did the horse disappear? And what's the lesson of the story? Don't think about what happened to the hole in the bagel. Don't think about what happened to the material where the nail was knocked. Just stay focused on watching the horse. You know, we get so caught up with side issues, we can't forget what's important. If you're wise, you don't forget what's important. What's important? The Shekhinah is resting on our head. This has to be of primary importance. The light of the Shekhinah, although it's there, in order to shine, needs oil. A wise man is constantly thinking about providing oil for the Shekhinah. And he explains the anatomy of the fire of the Shekhinah. Begin de gufa de varnash ihu pesila unahira adlik laela. For man's body is the wick that retains the luminous flame, and the light is kindled above it. Ushloima malka tzavach va'amar v'shemen al reishcha al yachzar. And thus, King Solomon cried out, saying, Let there be no lack of oil above your head. So in Kohelas, Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, said, At all times let your clothing be white, and let there be no lack of oil above your head. So simply interpreted, it means that a person always has to be ready to be summoned to the next world. And therefore, he always has to make sure that his clothing are white and that he is smeared, anointed with oil. The sages give a parable of a king who invited his servant to a feast, but he didn't tell him when the feast was going to be. So the servant was always prepared to come to the feast. And so therefore he took care to always be wearing clean clothing and to be anointed with oil. But in a deeper level, when we look at the statement that there should be no oil lacking above your head, it means that the Shekhinah, the light of the Shekhinah rests above our head. And we have to be careful to always make sure that there's plenty of oil for the Shekhinah. For the light over his head requires oil. Meaning good deeds. The good deeds that man performs are the oil which supplies the light illuminating his soul. And the Yanuka concludes, And for this reason, the wise man's eyes are in his head to ensure that he never lacks oil, good deeds for this light. The quotation from the Zohar ends here. So he says, the wise man's eyes are in his head. He's always interested and focused on the light of the Shekhinah that's above his head. What is he worried about? What is he concentrated on? Concentrated on providing oil. Oil? 
Yes, there's a certain anatomy of the flame. What's the anatomy of the flame? There's the flame, the wick, and the fuel. Physically, a, a wick is what holds the flame. But oil is what sustains and fuels the flame. If you light just a wick, it's not going to stay lit. And furthermore, the fire that comes from that wick is going to be dark and hazy, and there's going to be a lot of debris because a wick is coarse. It's not perfect material to sustain a fire. Oil, on the other hand, can't be lit on its own. It needs a wick. But it's the perfect vessel suited to fuel a fire because it's very, very refined. And the purer it is, the clearer and brighter its light. And it gets utterly absorbed within the flame without leaving debris. It's the perfect medium to sustain a fire. The Rambam, Maimonides, in Hilchas Yisaidi HaTara, speaks about the four elements of fire, water, air, and earth. And he says that fire is the lightest of all. It's the most spiritual. And in order to sustain something spiritual, you need something that's very, very refined. So that's in the physical example. But now this translates to spiritually. Spiritually speaking, we all have a flame. That flame is the light of the Shekhinah. What's the wick? What holds the light down here in this world? It's our body. What is the oil? The oil are good deeds. Now, that could be something puzzling because I understand why a body can't be the fuel for the Shekhinah. In order to fuel a fire, you have to be something that's well suited to the fire. The body is like the wick, coarse and unrefined. It has a separate identity. It can't be that which is totally nullified within the Shekhinah. But what about the soul? The soul is literally a part of the divine. And I get it that not everybody's soul shines brightly because the soul comes down here and it struggles. And a lot of people, most people, their soul is concealed. But what if somebody's soul is manifest? What if somebody is so in touch with their spirituality that their soul is unconcealed? Their soul shines. Why is it that this, it is specifically good deeds that act as fuel as the, for the fire, but not the soul. The soul would seem to be a perfect medium for the fire. And yes, we did learn that some people have a very hard time revealing feelings of true love and fear within their soul. Some people have a very hard time of ha having actual, manifest, full-fledged feelings of love and fear. It's like a struggle that they have. So for them, you might say, okay, in your situation, you use good deeds because your love is never fully manifest. But we're not talking about that specific group of people. We're talking about everybody. We're talking about the greatest tzaddik. The greatest tzaddik, in order to sustain the fire, needs the fuel of good deeds. And this is very puzzling. And this is what the Altarab is going to explain now. Vihine, be'er mashal zeh, shehim shel or hashchina l'or haner. The meaning of this analogy, comparing the light of the Shekhinah to the light of the candle, is clear to every intelligent person, as the Altarebbe will conclude shortly after a closer, ex closer examination of its details. Just as it is true of the candle's flame, 
She'enai me'ir v'ne'achaz bapsila, bli shemen. That it does not shed light, nor is it retained by the wick without oil. By nature, fire strains upward. It will not remain below unless restrained by a wick or wood, for example. But a wick alone is rapidly consumed and the fire vanishes quickly. Moreover, the burning wick produces a dim and smoky light, for it consists of material insufficiently refined to be completely absorbed by the flame. Oil, on the other hand, is completely transformed into the flame and absorbed by it, burning steadily. It produces a pure and clear light. This is what is meant by the Altareba statement, that without oil, the flame of the candle, A, does not shed light, B, nor is it retained by the wick. Now, let's return to the point of the analogy. Similarly, the Shekhinah does not rest upon man's body, which is compared to a wick, except through man's performing good deeds. The body can only act as a wick, not as oil. It is a coarse, physical being which will not be absorbed within the light of the Shekhinah, but will always remain separate from it. From it, The good deeds that man performs provide the oil. So this is very interesting. And just in a very timely fashion, Chabad.org featured an interesting biography recently that stressed this point. There is this man in Florida. I don't know who he is, but they write about him on Chabad.org. His name is Paul Sussman. And he, in his youth, had a very good friend who was genius and very spiritual. And his good friend got him to go to Tibet. They were in the mountains meditating for, I don't know, two or three years. And unfortunately, his friend died young. And he was left and he was seeking spirituality. And in the end, a conservative rabbi told him, if you're looking for Jewish mysticism, that feeling, that spirituality within Judaism, you should go seek out Chabad. So he gave him the number for Chabad, and he ended up getting in touch with the Chabad Shliach, Rabbi Tenenhaus. Now, he made great strides in his Judaism. He loved to study Jewish mysticism. He loved to study Tanya. He wasn't so into the mitzvahs yet. So for example, when the rabbi said to him, I need you for the minion, he said, no, I'm not interested in praying. And he said, listen, you don't have to pray, but we need you for the minion. Just show up. And he would come to the minion. And he would read the New York Times while everybody else was praying. And the rabbi would joke and say, he's living with the times. The Alter Rebbe said that a person has to live with the times. And that means we live with the lessons of the Parsha of the week. He was reading the New York Times. So the rabbi joked that he's living with the times. Now, in 1990, he writes a letter to the Rebbe asking for guidance in refining himself spiritually. And he was very unhappy with the answer that he got. So he was shocked when the Rebbe told him that there is no need for a response to the two-page letter he had written asking the Rebbe for guidance in refining his character traits. The Rebbe said that the answer is clear and quoted a section from Leviticus, Vayikra, beginning, if you follow my statutes and observe my commandments and perform them, then all the blessings will follow. He said, I was being told that the bottom line is do not get caught up in esoteric philosophies. Just do it. Just observe. This is a world of action. The deed is the essence and the mitzvahs are the only path to selflessness and transcending the ego. I stamped my foot 
and said to Rabbi Tenenhouse, I don't like this answer. He just hit me on the back and said, that's your evil impulse. Don't worry, you will overcome it. And in time, I did, he said. The right belief may lead to the right action, but the right action is ultimately more important. It's the accumulation of those right actions that can transform what we believe and feel. Now, you have to understand that when the Rebbe was advising him, just do the mitzvah, it's coming from somebody who understands the deepest secrets of the Torah, who teaches how everything is connected on the deepest level. And with that lens of knowing what a mitzvah is, that's exactly what the Rebbe advised this gentleman, Mr. Paul Sussman, to do. Yes, you want to work on yourself. The best way to work on yourself is actually keep the mitzvahs. There is something to a mitzvah that nothing else has in this world. And that's what the Alter Rebbe is explaining over here. Because we were asking the question, why can't the soul act as fuel for the fire? The soul of a person whose soul is manifest within them, somebody who lives a very godly life. We have to remember what the divine soul is. The divine soul's entire essence is divine. Its intellect is all about thinking about Hashem. Its emotions are all about love and awe of Hashem. It's all about Hashem. So a person whose soul is manifest, we would think his soul could be the fuel for the fire. And yet it's not the case. And the altar was going to explain why. Kihine, nishmas ha'adam, afilu hutzadik gamor, aivi Hashem For the soul of a man, even if he be a perfect tzadik, who serves God with fear and with a pleasurable love, meaning his love consists of delighting in the experience of godliness, a most lofty form of love. So this is somebody of the highest caliber. There's different ranks of tzaddikim. A tzaddik who's on the highest level experiences a pleasurable love. Normally, love is about thirst. Think about the child who's away from home. He's homesick. He's longing. There's distance. He's thirsty. He yearns to connect. But then there's a pleasurable love of you're already there. You already have it. You're experiencing the experience. That is a pleasurable love. Rabbi Steinsaltz gives the example. Very interesting words in the Torah. The Torah is telling us how Yaakov loved Rachel so much. He was waiting seven years to marry her because he was now implied, employed as a shepherd working for seven years till he could marry Rachel. And the Torah tells us that those seven years were like just a few days in his eyes because he loved her so much. What? You're waiting seven years to marry her. You love her so much. Seven years should feel like seven millennia or at least 70 years. What does it mean seven years were like a few days? That's because his love for her was on such a high level. It was not a love that demanded anything. It was the love in just knowing that the, his beloved exists. If you look at it, it is a kind of love that's so different. No demands. You exist, that gives me pleasure. So we're talking about a tzaddik of the highest order. A tzaddik who it says about him, Olam you will see the next world in your lifetime. He's already experiencing the pleasure of the divine while he is alive in a body. This highest caliber tzaddik, 
somebody who loves Hashem with a pleasurable love, still. It is ne- his soul is nevertheless not utterly nullified out of existence so that it might be dissolved into and absorbed within God's light to be merged with it in perfect unity. Even the soul of such a high person cannot be utterly nullified within Hashem. Rak hu davar bifne atmai. Yire Hashem ve'oi It is rather a separate entity which fears God and loves him. Since it is not absorbed within godliness, as oil is absorbed within a flame, the soul cannot serve as oil for the light of the Shekhinah. So even the highest level of tzaddik has a separate identity. This is not an ego. It's simply a separate consciousness. The fact that there is I who cleaves to Hashem, I who love Hashem, I who am in awe of Him, just the fact that there is a separate consciousness means that it, He is not utterly canceled out of existence within the divine. If the soul has a separate consciousness, it's not perfect oil to fuel the light. Of the Shekhinah. And this is not a fault of our own. This is the way human beings were created. The soul down here is not as it was above. Above, it was totally united with Hashem. Once it comes down here, it becomes something of a created being with a separate consciousness, and this is for a reason. This is because we are meant to come down in a world feeling separate, feeling that the world is separate, and in that state of separation, come to recognize that there's nothing else besides Hashem. But nevertheless, a soul is not perfect fuel for the light of the Shekhinah. Okay, so let's sum up what we said until now, and then we'll move into this next section. So we said like this, we're looking at why it is that good deeds are of primary importance. And we're looking at the words of the Yanuka, the young child in the Zohar. And he says, a wise man's eyes are in his head. What does that mean? His eyes are in his head. His eyes, his interests, his focus is always on the Shekhinah that rests above his head. And because his interests are there, all he thinks about is providing oil for the Shekhinah. The Yunuku says, what's the oil? The oil are the good deeds. The wick is the body. The flame is the Shekhinah. The oil are good deeds. Why is the oil good deeds? Why can't it be the soul itself? Because even the soul of the most lofty person, a person who's already experiencing pleasurable love of the divine, nevertheless is a separate entity. And because it's a separate entity, there's something other there. There's something that resists. It's not perfect fuel for the flame. Now, all this is in contrast to the mitzvahs. Not so with the mitzvahs and good deeds, which are God's will. Each commandment representing God's desire that a particular act be performed. So this is the most amazing thing. What is a mitzvah? A mitzvah has no other side issue other than being divine. It is the divine will. There's no separate issue in a mitzvah other than being the divine will. 
Everything in this world has some type of front and back. Everything has, this is the core, and then this is the externalities, the trappings. There is nothing external to Hashem's will in a mitzvah. It is nothing else besides His will. I want to say this in as many words as I can because it is such a nuclear concept. There's a great story that I heard in the way that it's poignant. But it underscores the fact that if a person doesn't understand what a mitzvah is, it really is sad. So there was a great chassid who was staying at an inn for Shabbos. He was poor. So he brought with him black bread. That's all he could afford for his Shabbos meal. Staying at the same inn was an observant Jew, very affluent, and he brought a lavish Shabbos feast with him. So Shabbos comes. They have their Friday night meal. They go to sleep. Shabbos day comes. Everybody goes to shul. They daven. They pray. They come back home to eat their meal. The chassid sits down and he eats his meal of black bread. That's what he could afford. After the meal, he sits down to study. The other man pulls out his meal. He eats his lavish Shabbos feast. Feast is over. He sits down to polish his shoes. The chassid is surprised. He must know that you shouldn't polish shoes on Shabbos. So he reminds him, Shabbos, you can't polish your shoes. And the man is indignant. And he looks at the chassid and he says, and black bread you could eat on Shabbos? And this story illustrates something that is missing. Something missing in the understanding of what a mitzvah is. When a person looks at a mitzvah as a system of conventions, then the reason why you don't polish your shoes on Shabbos is because of the decorum. And if it suits me to polish my shoes, then the person will polish their shoes. And just like it's not nice to polish shoes on Shabbos, it's not nice to eat black bread on Shabbos. But if a person understands what a mitzvah is, a mitzvah is an expression of the pure divine will When a person performs a mitzvah, when they do something positive or they abstain from doing something negative, they become the embodiment of Hashem's will in this world. It's not about black bread. It's about doing something that's beyond us, that transcends us. This is Hashem's will as it manifests in this world. And it becomes a whole different system. It's like one of my kids was telling me, you know, somebody told her there's an easy way to get sechar reward. The easy way to get a reward is tie your left shoe first. And that was kind of a foreign to her. And she was like trying to wrap her mind around it. Like I never heard that before. It's an easy way to get reward. Tie your left shoe first. I said to her, you know what? She's just expressing a truth in a different language. The truth in the right language is Tying your left shoe first is just a simple way of connecting to Hashem, and infinitely so. When a person says it's an easy way to get a zahar, they only stopped down here. They forgot to reach to where it goes. What's the zahar? The ultimate reward is you get to connect to Hashem, and it's so easy. Just tie your left shoe first, and you're connected to Hashem. And so we have to understand what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is unlike anything else in this universe. And the altar is going to explain why. The mitzvah is Hashem's will, but everything is Hashem's will. And yet there's something unique about the mitzvahs. So let's look at Hashem's will. Now, God's will is the source of life 
for all the worlds and the creatures. They live only because Hashem desires. So we're saying a mitzvah is Hashem's will, but everything is Hashem's will. It says in Tehillim, Kuflamid, hey, kosher chafez Hashem asa, whatever Hashem desired, he created. So simply speaking, it means no one's going to stop Hashem. Whatever he wanted to make, he made. But if you look at it deeper on a Kabbalistic level, it means just from Hashem wanting something, that's what brings it into existence. That's not like the human experience. You want something, that becomes the catalyst for you to take the proper steps so that you get it done. But it's not like I want it and then it comes into existence. When we talk about the divine, Hashem wants something, it automatically comes into existence. Just to draw a distinction between human will and divine will is very, very different. If a human being wants something, it's because he senses that there's a certain lack. And that thing is going to fill his void. So when he wants something, that thing now has an importance. This is what's going to complete me. This is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to bring me pleasure. I'm lacking and this is going to fill my void. When Hashem wants something, he lacks nothing. The only reason why he wants something is because he wants it. And that's it. And therefore, the only reason why it exists is because he wants it. So the thing that he wants has no significance. For a human being, when you want something, it means it's very important. Hashem, when his desire created something, it means it has no significance of its own. It's only there because Hashem wanted it. So everything is out of Hashem's will. The only reason why anything exists is because Hashem wanted it. So what's Hashem's will? Hashem's will is the source of life for all the world and all the created beings. What brings us into existence is the will of Hashem. Everything is the will of Hashem. But still there's a very big difference between the world and the created beings and the mitzvahs. And this is what the altar is going to explain right now. Okay, so like we said, God's will is the source of life for all the world and the creatures. The difference between the divine will expressed in mitzvot and that same will as expressed in creation lies in the latter's descending to them by means of many contractions, tzimtzumim, and by concealment of the countenance, meaning the internal aspect of the supernal will, with only the external, superficial aspect of God's will expressing itself in creation, and through a descent from level to level. So, Hashem wanted the world to, to exist, but in a certain space. He wanted the world to exist in a certain state. And that is that we think of ourselves as being separate. And we don't know the truth that there really is nothing else besides Hashem. And then from our separate consciousness in a world that seems separate, we come to recognize the truth that there's nothing else besides him. In order for the world to be created into such a state, there had to be a process. And the altar bus outlines three steps over here. He says, Simsumim Rabim, many contractions. What is a contraction? A contraction is taking the vast light and diminishing it. So there's tons of sunlight outside. A person builds a wall, and then puts in a window. 
Now, all the sunlight is not coming in. Some of the sunlight hits the wall and it doesn't come in, but some of the sunlight does come in a diminished amount through the window. That's symptom. Symptom is contraction. It's a diminishment. So taking that light, not changing the quality of the light, but changing the quantity. And even that, it was symptomum robin, many contractions. Then there's another term that the Alter Rebbe uses, and he says, Hester Punim, concealment of the countenance. Concealment of the countenance is not about the diminishment in the quantity of the light. It's a diminishment in the quality of the light. So take our analogy of the sunlight not coming through the wall, but coming in a diminished amount through the window. Now you put a curtain over the window. So sunlight is coming in through the entirety of the curtain, through the entire quantity of the curtain, but the quality greatly diminished. And that wasn't enough. Then the Alter Rebbe uses a third term, and he says, Yeridas Hamadregais, a descent from level to level. So descent from level to level is not just anymore a diminished quantity and also quality, it's repackaging. It's taking that light and putting into it into putting it into a strange garment that doesn't show the true quality of the light. Like for example, a brilliant teacher who has these abstract spiritual concepts that he wants to convey to his students who have no idea of spirituality and cannot grasp abstraction at all. So what does he do? He takes these deep spiritual abstract concepts and he repackages them in strictly concrete material terminology. Whole new packaging. And this is what happened with Hashem's will in order to create these worlds. Everything comes from his will. It's not just mitzvahs. Everything comes from Hashem's will. But when it comes to the world, when it comes to the created beings, it went through a process. Hashem's will has been contracted. And furthermore, it has been concealed. And furthermore, it went through a descent from level to level, repackaging in order so that there can be this existence that actually feels itself separate from him. All these steps were necessary so that it would be possible for the worlds and creatures to come into being and to be created ex nihilo, something out of nothing, as separate entities without becoming nullified out of existence, as mentioned above. Without the previously enumerated forms of concealment of godliness, all created beings would be so completely nullified before the divine will that created them that they would have no independent identity. Thus, the divine will expressed in creation can only come about through its seeming contraction, occultation, and descent. So like we said, everything comes from Hashem's will. But the world and the created beings go through this process so that they actually feel separate. They feel like they're a separate identity. And what's going to come up next is the altar is going to say, in contrast, the mitzvahs, on the other hand, are totally different. And this is what we're going to look at next class. Let me summarize what we said in this last section. And that is, yes, we need oil for the light of the Shekhinah, but it cannot be the soul of a person. 
Because even the soul of the greatest person has a separate consciousness. And therefore, it cannot be utterly nullified within the divine. In contrast, mitzvahs are Hashem's pure will. There is nothing else to them besides being His will. And they serve as the perfect medium to sustain the light of the Shekhinah that's above our head. So I'm opening up now for questions and discussions.